Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. My guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious is William Boyer, a professor emeritus and the former chairman of the Department of Educational Foundations at the University of Hawaii. In 1986, William Boyer wrote a book called America's Future, Transition into the 21st Century. In this program, originally broadcast in May of 1993, when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas, we'll discuss his book and why, from his perspective, the American government does not function. We also discuss the rights of future generations, how to protect them, what those rights are, and what right we have to determine the rights of future generations. Bill Boyer, welcome to Government Politics and Ideas. Well, thank you, Barry. I'm glad to be here. Why doesn't American, uh, the American government work? Well, of course, it works to some degree, but I think it has some basic structural problems. Um, the main one is that people become elected by responding to specific constituencies. Now, these constituencies vary in the amount of power that they have, but they seldom represent what could be called the public interest, so they, they fragment the country. And, and what happens then is that a person who is elected on the basis of the support, both financially and in the vote of, of certain particular constituencies, is faced with uh, an objective after he gets there, which is likely to be, to be re-elected. Uh, consequently, playing up to particular constituencies uh, tends to preclude getting a hold of some of our rather basic problems, particularly long-range problems. It's hard to uh, have a group of legislators who are serving the long-range public interest when their own survival depends on responding to constituencies, especially those that will donate a lot of money for their campaign. Let's talk about term limits for a moment. Uh, would that, uh, in your opinion, uh, make the elected uh, office holders more responsible? Well, I think it's not a very good uh, solution. Uh, it would solve maybe a few problems. Uh, one of the things it might do then is to have a, a lot of neophytes there, which makes the lobbyists have an easier time uh, getting what they want. And then for the latter part of the time that people are there with no chance of being reelected, uh, it uh, it may well be that they're not uh, going to be held accountable even to their constituencies. What would work to solve that problem? I think what is needed is to have certain types of overriding goals, uh, in effect goals that are driving policies, particularly ethics-based goals, that are part of the basic law. And that's what I've been dealing with, trying to get some of those policies into actual environmental law, which then becomes, in a sense, the meta law. Now, well, let's, let's talk about what some of those uh, driving policies or overriding goals would be and how we could implement them. Uh, what we're doing here in Oregon at the present time, a group of us are 
trying to get through, and we've started out in the legislature and the Senate, a uh, set of uh, environmental rights. Now, states can only do so much with respect to goals and rights, but I think they can take the initiative on environmental rights. Uh, the rights that we're dealing with, and if we get them through, will be elected, uh, or there'll be a chance for the public to to uh, select them or reject them in the in the um, 94 uh, uh, election. They then will become driving principles in relation to the environment. One of them has to do with the right of people to have protection from known harmful pollutants. This is a kind of a right to a healthful environment, but it's stated more specifically in, the, in those negative terms, protection okay. from pollutants. Basically, a uh, basic human right not to be poisoned. That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, and the other one has to do with the rights of future generations to have the sustained use of natural resources. Now, those, those two rights, if they were in the Constitution, would mean then that when somebody was elected, they would, to quite a large degree, know what it is they're supposed to do after they get there, namely to serve these two ethics-based goals. How then uh, do you propose to establish these goals? Uh, in Oregon, I understand you're doing it as a constitutional amendment? Uh, Oregon provides an opportunity to either get them established through a referendum, which really means that the legislature then would say it's okay to set those up uh, for an election so that the public can have some choice as to whether they want to support them or not. The other is an initiative, which means that you get a very large number of signatures from the general public, and then at election time, uh, there can be a, a decision on the part of the public. They, in effect, when they vote, are to a large degree voting on the future. They're voting to select particular values that have bearing on the future, and in this case, environmental rights of this type could well be there for 100, 200, 500 years. Well, what you're saying uh, seems to pose two topics. Uh, one is the purpose of a constitution. Is it to uh, be prospective or uh, reactionary or retrospective? And two, uh, it seems that under our uh, commercial economic capitalist system, that it's the polluters who are rewarded in the economic sense. Uh, I would think that those two concepts um, are juxtaposed. Well, yeah, a lot of people think that somehow there's an inherent characteristic of a constitution that it can only do what it's been doing in the past. I discovered when I was in Hawaii, where I taught for a long while, uh, the public there has the constitutional right to throw away their constitution every 10 years and vote in another one um, if they like and have a constitutional convention. Uh, they did that twice while I was there. In the second one, I became uh, involved in that. And I saw that the constitution can be an instrument to help create the future, an instrument of uh, value realization rather than just one based on established precedent. So really that's 
what we are doing to some degree with these environmental rights. Well, then if we take, uh, or if we acknowledge the concept that our governmental system rewards polluters, uh, and the polluters are generally the large corporate um, uh, owners, ownerships, landholders, employers, uh, don't you see a lot of opposition to establishing these rights? Yes, uh, there well could be, and uh, of course that's where the democratic process comes in, because a much higher number of people, percentage-wise, would be aided by this, but a small number might very well uh, object because they could they could see that they don't have the chance to to uh, exploit the public by um, having them involuntarily receive the effects of, of pollution. I'd like to describe briefly what happens at the present time because when you have pollution now, you have in effect two players, the breather, so to speak, and the polluter. Uh, when, the two, when the two are in conflict, the polluter, as you mentioned, is finding it very profitable to pollute. Uh, and the breather then, let's say he's uh, living downstream from where the where forest uh, service people uh, are uh, putting defoliants. Uh, pretty soon you have a situation where people then say, well now look at maybe we're getting cancer or something from the contamination of the water. Uh, it's not really definite probably as to whether the chemicals in there are as dangerous as is claimed, but uh, it's uh, not provable. There's a gray area as to how, how dangerous to one's health it is. Now if there is no right of the person to a healthful environment, no right of protection from pollutants, then the settlement of this usually occurs by the uh, polluters uh, paying a lot for an attorney, uh, usually uh, winning because the person who said that they were injured can't entirely prove the case. The burden of proof question then becomes exceedingly important. And if you don't give rights to polluters, but you do give rights to the average citizen to something in the form of a, of a clean and healthful environment, then you enter the, the dispute settlement situation with an a priori judgment already made, and that is that the burden of proof will tend to fall heavily on the polluter to show that the chemicals are reasonably safe. And that is exactly what we do with the FDA uh, when we take chemicals and require them to be tested, and then we go to the drugstore, and they've gone through a testing process in which the chemicals are presumed to have been guilty until they prove themselves innocent. And we do that voluntarily. Now, in our ordinary life, we involuntarily receive the results of pollutants in which we tend to be treated as though we are guilty until we prove that the, that the chemicals are really a, a source of our ill health. Well, the chemical companies take the position that uh, you can't prove, uh, sick person, that your sickness was caused from our uh, pollution. And you're suggesting that uh, under uh, a chemical-free or pollution-free society, that shifts the burden of proof? Well, it isn't a matter of necessarily being chemical-free, but it's a matter 
of, of starting to shift that burden of proof so that agencies and government, which would be obligated under our bill to protect us, would then be in the position of having to show in protecting us that the kinds of pollutants that were being released were really safe, were not dangerous. Now, you can't eliminate all pollution, so you can't get anything that says there should be absolutely no pollution of any sort. But however, you clearly can move into the scientific area by saying that, that when there's any evidence that the chemicals are dangerous and when there's evidence that the dangerous chemicals are affecting anybody's health, that the assumption should be that they should not be allowed because health should operate at a higher level uh, than, the, uh, than the industrial system uh, producing certain pollutants. And at the present time, we don't have those kinds of ethical priorities built into the political system. Therefore, we have to deal with these problems on a dis ad hoc, piecemeal dispute settlement basis in which there is constant litigation and in which generally the powerful win. I want to take a moment and say that you're listening to Government Politics and Ideas. My name is Barry Vogel. My guest this week is uh, retired Professor, uh, Professor Emeritus Bill Boyer, uh, who is now living in Oregon, taught for many years at the University of Hawaii. And we're talking about how to make the American system of government work with the concept of um, developing and establishing ethical priorities in the Oregon Constitution and hopefully in other states. Um, Bill, has what you're proposing been done elsewhere? Well, actually, to some degree, it has been done uh, in Hawaii, and it has been done uh, in Montana. I called the Attorney General's office in Montana, and they said it doesn't done very much there because the peculiarities of the Supreme Court is that they don't uh, pay any attention to the Constitution. So when you have a situation like that, you have a you know a, an endemic bottleneck of some sort. Now, there, the possibilities for it being used in both pl both places are still good. I just recently found out that a constitution uh, was developed in Brazil, uh, the first nation, uh, apparently, uh, to incorporate principles of this sort. And uh, people have standing and go into the courts and such. Now, I don't have all the details on that, but the the notion is more popular all the time. And let me point out that the second provision that we're dealing with has to do with the sustainability which gives, therefore, rights to future generations and uh, will help stop the process of stealing from future generations, which is now the process that we're so highly engaged in because non-renewable resources are consumed rather than just used. So we have to move toward use distinctions, so we are distinguishing between using resources and consuming them. When we consume them, we are taking finite, limited aspects of the life support system. We're stealing from the common heritage of mankind, and to quite a large degree, our current economy is based on that form of theft. Let's talk about some of those use distinctions and, uh, and the theft. What are those distinctions? How would you characterize them? Uh, the things that are most obvious, I think, have to do with 
the depletion of uh, topsoil as an example. Uh, insofar as uh, farmers can use any sort of method which may destroy topsoil or let it go into streams, insofar as logging can operate in such a way in which uh, later on when it rains the topsoil uh, goes into streams, what you're doing is to getting getting rid of a crucial aspect of the life support system that has to do with the very survival of people in the future. And of course the genes of species are disappearing uh, very rapidly, uh, another category of uh, non-renewability. When you get into things like uh, petroleum, uh, this gets a little more complicated because how are you going to use it, say, without actually using it up, so to speak? Well, I think that if you're going to take energy sources that were solar-based many, many years ago, but are limited and are finite, that then is when you start to put ethics into the political system, your basic requirement is to have a process in which the tax is high enough on those forms of fuel that you are going to use that tax to create a structure that is going to be able to capture incoming sustainable solar energy for future generations. In other words, it's not right just to use it up and get cheap gasoline and things of that sort the crucial process if you're really uh, going to uh, make proper use out of that energy uh, is to lay the groundwork in uh, infrastructure, uh, the money that's required to set up uh, forms of solar collection which is going to provide a, a comparable uh, level of, uh, uh, of energy transfer to be used by future generations. If we're talking about uh, gasoline tax, and I think you are, um, don't you think that there'll be a lot of resistance, not only from uh, particularly the people in California, um, which I characterize as a group of people who subscribe to the 80% theory, and that's uh, if you go to California or you'll, you'll look out the window, you'll see that four out of five people believe and practice that you should have one person per car. Uh, they're going to object to it. The gasoline companies are going to object to it. Um, how do you propose to get that across so that we can have uh, a viable form of transportation with solar-powered vehicles? Well, I think you minimize re the, the resistance when you get past the point of thinking you can do merely one thing. In other words, if in addition to the kinds of goals that I'm uh, talking about, you also get some other goals that, that gives people some reasonable assurance of work, socially useful, environmentally responsible work, get more involved in integrated planning that gives one a picture of a better future in the future, a better future than we have at the present time. And what I'm really talking about is a process by which people, in effect, elect the future, you say. So the two objectives and adding these others permit some kind of planning process to take place where people are not so likely to resist it because if they really see that the changes in the planning that are occurring are likely to give them overall a better future uh, than the movement from increased air pollution to other kinds of vehicle opportunities 
uh, electric cars, uh, trains, uh, uh, living closer to work and everything, will be a process in which the community, in a more cooperative way, will be moving from a multiple set of crises into some kind of reasonably planned future. We, we, we don't do that at the present time, so we just deal with one problem. We create a lot of resistance because there's little assurance on the part of people uh, that uh, anything's going to happen to them except for them to lose opportunities that they have now. Can you give us your ideas, uh, your thoughts on the specifics of the type of planning that, that you talk about? Well, in my book, uh, uh, Transition, uh, America's Future, Transition to the 21st Century, what I'm proposing is what I call uh, integrated long-range transition planning. We are now at a phase in history uh, where we live globally in what's called the war system. It's, uh, it's anarchy globally. Uh, it's a poverty system. We arrange economics so it's sort of like the monopoly game where it's prede predetermined that some will win and a lot will uh, lose. Uh, it's uh, industrially and economically uh, pre-ecological uh, so we throw our garbage around uh, and we have uh, no way of sustaining the life support system. We're recognizing that we have these obsolete institutions then gives us a way of designing institutions in the future that have the good characteristics uh, rather than the ones that I just uh, described. Uh, this is then a vision, a practical vision for the future. Uh, people used to call these utopian, but I'm, I'm, if you want to call it utopian, it's practical utopianism. I'm not talking about something that is not realizable. Uh, so it's in the future, in a 5, 10, 15 year period, we can move with intentional planning from one uh, obsolete, pathological, dangerous, and very expensive uh, kind of, uh, of way of living uh, into another that has a basis for, uh, le a legitimate basis for hope and uh, is very realizable. How do you propose to uh, convince the electorate to support this kind of governmental leadership uh, in a time of, of need, a time of homelessness, uh, a time of uh, provide food and shelter now? The reason there's homelessness and the reason there's a lot of conflict at the present time at the national level is that we don't even have the basic rights to, to a job. We don't even have the basic rights to things like shelter. Here it is in the latter part of the 20th century. It's, it's just shameful uh, that we have such enormous capacity to achieve these things, but, but we, we don't have them. Now, the reason we're not trying to do that in Oregon is that that can only be done at a national level. And there are some things that would have to be done at a global level. But the crises that we have at the present time in some ways uh, provide an exceptional opportunity for saying how could a nation with the capacity that we have uh, uh, fail so miserably in some of these areas. Well then what you can do is to go around and sort of hand people money and give them places to stay overnight or you can face up more directly to the basic human rights question that they have not had the sorts of rights that are necessary for people and uh, clearly there's no guarantee of any sort like a constitutional guarantee for those rights. Now I would then 
jump from that to say that we also need global human rights because the rights I've been talking about are really only American rights. And if we were to go on further with this and describe the conditions of people in the world that are absolutely abysmal, then we would have to be talking about 21st century planning of a similar type, but on a very large scale. Talk about that for a minute, if you would, please. Well, you see, if you look at the structuring of the world at the present time, there is no form of authority that links the world together outside of the dominance of individual nations, their military and their economic power. Uh, what you really have, therefore, is a form of global uh, anarchy. Uh, as a result, you have uh, rights in the United States that are American rights, and you have French rights and such, but there are no human rights uh, for people on this planet that they can all can claim as human beings. Now, in order to uh, achieve those things, you have to begin to develop an authority system and human rights goals, which most logically would consist now of rather fundamental charter and systems change of the United Nations, moving toward peacekeeping systems, moving toward the uh, uh, disarmament of nations and the, and the recognition that the guarantee of, uh, of, of national security can be increased by moving away from nation-state military systems uh, into some form of uh, enforceable uh, representative law operating through a change uh, in the United Nations structure. When you, when you begin to do that, you can then shift the world's resources away from bombs, away from militarism, and begin to talk about human needs and place those up high on the list of priorities and actually use economic systems to focus on those human needs. Is the United Nations uh, Declaration of Human Rights a step in that direction? It's a step in that direction in, in the form of a declaration, but you see there, there is no uh, enforceable law to uh, achieve those uh, particular rights. They historically, the Declaration of Human Rights moved from the American system and others that were similar, that were essentially negative, that protected us from the tyranny of government, and begin to shift over to what are called positive rights, uh, rights to employment, uh, rights to uh, education, rights to various other things that are positive. Now, um, added to that uh, is the sort of thing that I'm working on in relation to environmental rights. If you add those positive rights to the Declaration of Human Rights, and then begin to work on the change and development of global institutions so that you can begin to, to develop the, the sort of, uh, of world law and world community that can deliver those rights, then we have a fundamentally different type of world in the 21st century. Bill Boyer, I want to thank you very much for being with us here on Government, Politics, and Ideas and sharing your thoughts. Well, thanks a lot. It was enjoyable being here. Thank you very much, Barry. William Boyer is a professor emeritus and the former chairman of the Department of Educational Foundations at the University of Hawaii. He's the author of America's Future, Transition into the 21st Century. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. 
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.